Let's start tonight in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. Uh, prays two prayers, one in, in uh, chapter 1, one in chapter 3. That uh, uh, he indicates to us are given to, uh, these prayers were given to him by the Holy Ghost. And then he gave us knowledge so that the Holy Ghost could uh, keep a record of it for us. Let's start in verse 15. Paul said, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, cease not means he keeps praying this. Over and over and over he prays this. That the, Father, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened or open. Some translations uh, translate that word understanding as the word spirit. The eyes of your spirit being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Then notice this phrase in verse 22. And has put all things under his feet. And gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now I want you to notice in that prayer, and again this is a prayer that he said the Holy Ghost gave him. And the Holy Ghost gave, gave us a record so that we would know. Which says to me that this prayer is just as good today as it was in the days that Paul was praying it. But Paul is directed by the Holy Ghost to pray something for the church at Ephesus. And notice he doesn't pray that God would give them power. He doesn't pray that God would give them some kind of supernatural strength or something from heaven. He prays that the church would know who they are and what belongs to them. Now, if you'll back up a little bit in this uh, chapter 1 to where Paul is uh, making his greetings to the people and so forth, he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us. Now, folks, that's past tense. Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to, be to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. In verse 3, he's saying specifically that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. That means every blessing, every uh, thing that you could possibly want, you've already been blessed with. Anything that starts from the spirit realm is yours. Now, if that's true, and of course we believe it is, and we're proving it in our lives consistently, but since that's true, let's say it this way, since that's true, there's really not anything that you and I need to ask God for. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray. We should pray, and Paul prayed this a lot. He prayed this for uh, the churches that he established. I wouldn't doubt at all that he prayed this for himself because we can always grow in wisdom. We can always grow in the knowledge of who we are. We can always grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is. There's, uh, there's no end to that. But nowhere in this prayer does he pray that God would give them strength. Now, at this point in time that he writes this, the church is under some uh, pretty serious persecution. 
maybe not the, the height of persecution that the church endured in the first um, generation of the first century of the church, but significant enough so that people have lost, lost their lives. And he didn't pray that God would give them one thing except an open mind or open spirit, spiritual eyes being opened to who we are in Christ. To who we are in Christ. We have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Folks, if that's true, and we know that, uh, that God created the world, Jesus literally was the creator of the world by speaking things into existence. If all spiritual blessings have been given to us, what need do we have? Now, what I mean by that is, what do we need God to give us in addition to it? He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings. All spiritual blessings. That says to me, there's nothing left out. So anything in this earthly realm that is supplied by heaven, whether in the beginning or up until the point that Jesus died for our sins as our substitute, what is there to pray for? If you go back and you look at the things that Jesus said to pray for, he said pray for people to go into the harvest, laborers to go into the harvest. The Bible talks about praying for the will of God to be done. But nowhere does it talk about praying to get something from God. And the reason for that is because God's already given us everything. I think, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, I think the church has gotten caught up in asking God for things because, simply because we don't know what we have. And a lot of times, a lot of situations, the things that we're praying for, since they have already been given to us, since they already belong to us, those are wasted prayers. The Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, if prayer can be effectual or effective, then that means prayer can be ineffective too, right? I think a lot of the praying of the church, the modern day church is ineffective. Now turn with me over to Second uh, Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, he wants our eyes to be enlightened, or we could say it this way, our, not, our minds to be illuminated to who we are in Christ and what we have. Paul writing to Timothy makes a statement to him that, um, well, it's worth consideration at the, at the very least. And I think it applies to us in a lot of ways that we don't recognize. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor the church. Timothy was for roughly 40 years, close to 40 years, the bishop of the church at Ephesus. He was also instrumental in uh, helping to minister to the seven churches in Asia, those churches that uh, Jesus writes to, uh, opens the book of Revelation concerning and talking about their church and their situation and so forth. And Paul writes to Timothy in verse 7, chapter 1, 2 Timothy, verse 7. He said, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love and of a sound mind. Now we all know that verse, but back up a verse to, chapter, uh, to verse 6. It says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I want you to notice that he's encouraging timothy to use what he has he's not asking god to give him anything he's not even asking for more power he indicates and declares that god has already given us power 
and love and of sound mind. Now, the word sound mind, it's uh, very similar to the word that's used for sober. Being sober as believers, it means not moved by emotion. Not moved by emotion. Now, that's interesting to me because he teams it up with what he calls the spirit of fear. Now, let's, uh, let's consider this for a second. See if we can understand what Paul's saying. Is Paul telling us that there is a spirit, an evil spirit, that operates in the world called fear? How many of you think that? Couple? Well, consider this. Since fear works against all of us, how could that one spirit be everywhere? Couldn't work that way, could it? Evil spirits are not omnipresent like God, who can be and is everywhere at once. Well, then what does this spirit of fear mean? Paul obviously is recognizing and indicating to us, telling us that fear has a spiritual source or fear has a spiritual origin. But instead of him meaning that there is a specific spirit, evil spirit at work called fear, I believe what he's saying is that there is a spiritual force operating in the earth against all of us called fear a spiritual force just like love is a spiritual force just like faith is a spiritual force fear is a spiritual force and the context that paul talks to timothy about it is that this fear apparently is keeping timothy from working at his great uh, at his greatest means of efficiency it seems to indicate to us, I know I didn't say that very well. Let me see if I can find a clearer way to get it across. He seems to be saying that Timothy is allowing fear to keep him from being who God's made him to be and standing in the office that God has for him to stand in. But notice what he says. He said, God has not given us the spirit of fear, the spiritual force or the spiritual power that's at work in the earth called fear that we know of as fear is not from God. But instead, what is from God is power and love and of a sound mind. Now, is there one specific uh, spirit, angel, or emissary from God that's called power? No, but power is a spiritual force. What about love? Is there a, a, a godly spirit, a good angel called love? No, it's an attribute and a characteristic of God. It's a spiritual force that's at work everywhere that God is, and God is everywhere. What about soundness of mind? Well, soundness of mind really has a lot to do with you and me renewing our minds. But we know that the Holy Ghost certainly helps us on that and in that endeavor. And I think that we could even say the renewed mind is a spiritual force as well. Wouldn't you think? So he says, Paul writes to Timothy and he does not pray. First of all, he doesn't say, Timothy, I've been praying to the Heavenly Father that he'll give you more power. I've been praying to the Father that he'd make you more loving. I've been praying to the Father that he would give you soundness of mind. He doesn't say any of that. He simply says to Timothy, I know what's in you because God put it in you because I laid hands on you. I know what's in you, but you're going to have to stir it up. You're going to have to do something about it. You're going to have to utilize it. And don't let fear get in the way. Don't let fear stop you. And this is the real point I'm trying to get to. Don't let fear stop you from using what God has given you. Now, we've got some outstanding examples in the scripture about where fear hinders God's plan and hinders God's work through the individual. 
You remember over in, um, I think it's Matthew chapter 14, where Peter asked Jesus to let him walk on the water with him. You remember the story? Jesus sends the disciples away, and in the middle of the night or early morning hours, really, he starts coming to them walking on the water, and they were afraid. They thought it was a ghost or something. And Jesus calls out and said, don't be afraid, it's me. You can't find anywhere in the Bible where Jesus ever showed up and said anything other than fear not. No angel, no emissary from God, no action of God whatsoever ever showed up and said, well, I understand why you're afraid. Things are really bad out there. It's always the same message, fear not. Fear not. So Jesus says to the group in the boat that's struggling with the storm, the great storm of wind, as the scripture says, Jesus said, don't be afraid, it's me. Then Peter challenges Jesus. He says, if it's you, bid me come onto the water and walk with you. And Jesus says, okay, come. He doesn't get bent out of shape about it. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, you you don't understand. I'm the son of God and only being the son of God is what makes me able to do this. Jesus never withheld anything other than his sacrificial substitution work for substitutionary work for mankind. That was the only thing he ever said to anybody that they couldn't do that he did. That was it. Everything else, what Jesus did, he's doing by the authority that's given to him as a human being on the earth who's anointed by the Holy Ghost, doing his father's will, everything related to doing his father's will on the earth. Jesus said, yeah, I want you to do this too. So he tells Peter, come. You remember the story. Peter starts walking on the water. The scripture specifically said he came down out of the boat and he walked on the water to go to Jesus. No doubt that's a miracle, right? Here's the miracle working power of God in action because of one word that Jesus said to Peter and that word was come. But then something happens. It says when Peter got out away from the ship, he's walking on the water. He's in the middle of a miracle. He knows he's in the middle of a miracle. He knows that people don't walk on the water unless God's helping them. But he looks around and he sees the wind blowing hard. He sees the effect that it's having on the waves. And it said, being afraid, he began to sink. He saw the wind boisterous. He saw the waves And he allowed that to create a condition within him. He allowed the emotions, the fear that came along with the circumstances that he saw to stop him from acting on what Jesus said. Now, that's a common theme that we see throughout the scriptures. Because you remember in Mark chapter 5, when Jairus came to Jesus and asked him to come lay his hands on his daughter, who was at the point of death, that she would live and not die. Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house. The woman with issue of blood comes in behind him, touches his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Straightway the fountain of her blood, that issue of blood that she had had for 12 years, was dried up and she knew in her body that she was healed of that plague. Jesus stops and looks around and says, who touched me? The disciple says, answer to the effect, everybody that can touch you is touching you. But he knows somebody touched him differently because he felt power go out of him into them. So she, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came down and came and fell down at his feet and told him all the truth. And Jesus answers her and says, daughter, your faith has made you whole. 
Now, while she's still speaking, while she's still giving, the, giving him the information about what happened and why and so forth, while he's still dealing with her, somebody came from Jairus' house and said, don't trouble the master any longer. Your daughter is dead. Now, I want you to consider, we don't know how far away Jairus' house is, but it's had to, it must have taken a couple of minutes at least. I mean, I'm assuming Jairus didn't live out in the country, that his house is somewhere there in town. So at the very least, his daughter's been dead for, for a few minutes. She's not dying at this moment that the report comes. She's already been dead for a little bit. And Jesus says something really interesting to Jairus. He immediately turns to Jairus and he says, don't be afraid, only believe. Don't be afraid, only believe. Now, here's two times. We could use a lot more examples if we wanted to as well. But here's two times specifically in the, the, during the ministry of Jesus where you see somebody that's in line for, in Jairus' case, in line for receiving a miracle, what he desires from God. And in Peter's case, operating in a miracle. And both of them are faced with fear right in the middle of it. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Peter let the fear stop him from doing what Jesus said he could do. Fear caused him to begin to sink down into the water. It caused him to forfeit the miracle that he's already begun or begun walking in. I think that's something that's important for us to recognize in Identifying how the devil works against us. Peter had enough faith to walk on the water because of what Jesus said. Why should he have allowed anything that he saw or felt from the wind and the waves or whatever else he was looking at? Why should he have allowed anything to stop him from the miracle that he's already doing? Clearly, he had enough faith to produce the miracle based on what Jesus said. Clearly, he's walking on the water to go to Jesus. I know we give him a hard time for sinking. And we probably should temper that with saying, maybe we'll have a greater opportunity to, to, to judge him for his unbelief after we walk on the water ourselves. But he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He's in the middle of the miracle that he wanted because Jesus said, come. But he let fear stop him. He let fear stop him from having God's best. He let fear keep him from continuing the miracle until the end. That's what Jesus is trying to keep Jairus from doing when he hears that his daughter's dead. Be not afraid, only believe. Be not afraid, only believe. He doesn't tell him he's going to have to start believing for something new. He didn't tell him that it's going to take a greater measure of faith than what he started with and by asking Jesus to come to his house. He doesn't say that there's one thing in the world he needs to add to anything. He says, be not afraid, only believe. What Jesus is telling him is very simply, don't give up. You're on the right track. What you did was sufficient. This can still turn out the way that you want it to, even though it sounds like it's gotten worse. If you handle fear well, if you handle fear well, 
Now, since God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind, what should we ever be afraid of? Since God has already blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, and our part in growing in God is simply to realize through prayer and study and meditation in the word, to come to the understanding or a greater understanding of who we are and what belongs to us. That's it. If it took something more than that, then Paul shortchanged them and us with the help of the Holy Ghost by giving us the record of the prayer he prayed. But he didn't. He's not praying for extra power. He's not even praying that we would have stronger faith. His prayer is that we would come to the understanding of who we are in Christ and what God has done for us. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 41, verse 10. It's a scripture that I'm sure most everybody is familiar with. Maybe not, they may not know where it is. But here's a pretty well-known scripture. Isaiah 41, 10, fear thou not, for I am with thee. You know how many times the phrase fear not is in the Bible? 365. Now, I don't know if there's a significance as far as the number is concerned, but there's one time per day every year worth of Scripture telling you not to be afraid. That's what Jesus told Jairus. Don't be afraid. Only believe. Now, what is he telling Jairus? Is he telling Jairus, don't feel fear? He's not telling Jairus not to feel anything. He's simply saying, don't let your feelings of fear take you from the position of faith that you started from. Don't let fear change you. Yeah, but the circumstances are different. God's not. Jairus, you wanted the outcome of your daughter being healed and being well. That's still in the realm of possibility based on you and based on how you deal with fear. There's a spiritual force that's going to come against all of us whenever we try to step out on the word. There's a spiritual force called fear that's going to come out against us to try to keep us from stepping out on the word. And how we handle it determines whether or not we'll walk like Peter did on the water and receive a miracle or sink. God said through Isaiah, fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed. For I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Well, if all those things are true about what God said he'd do, there isn't any reason to fear, is there? Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. We've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, by the substitutionary work of Jesus. We are righteous, just as righteous, the Bible says, as Jesus himself, because our righteousness is of him. I get tickled looking at all these commercials or seeing these commercials on TV where everybody's doing the genealogy stuff. Send in a blood sample or a hair sample or whatever. They'll run your DNA and tell you where you're from. I like one thing that Paul said about himself. Pedigree was important. Genealogy was really important in, in Paul's day. Being born of the right person 
a right family or whatever had everything to do with your social status. But Paul said simply this, I am of God. There's his genealogy right there. Well, that's what being made righteous means for you and me too. We are of God. We are of God. That's exactly what God's saying right here in Isaiah 41. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. So when Jesus is talking about or talking to Jairus and says, don't be afraid, only believe. He's simply telling him, don't let fear change your position. Don't let fear change what you said. Don't let fear alter what we're on the way to your house to get. Don't let fear change those things. Now, let me ask you a question. How many times do we see stories in the Bible of people winning great victories when they let fear affect them? You got David and Goliath, the story of David and Goliath. David shows up and the whole uh, whole of the uh, army of Israel is afraid of Goliath because of the threats that he's making. So David immediately starts asking people, what's going to be done to the guy that kills this giant? What does he get? He starts thinking about reward first and foremost. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Somebody ought to take, uh, take care of him. What will be done to the guy that does? He sees nobody in the, in the army as a candidate. And so they said, well, he'll become second in the kingdom to King Saul. Even brought into the family through marriage. So he keeps asking people, what shall be done to the person that takes, takes the head off of this Philistine? He gets the same answer. Finally, the word gets back to King Saul. Saul says, bring him here. Saul hadn't seen anybody in a long time, including himself, that's willing to go out and fight, believing that God will help him. So you remember the story how that Saul talks to David, tries to put his armor on him. But remember, Saul was head, uh, head taller than everybody else, so certainly his armor is not going to fit David. So David says, I don't know this stuff. He's convinced Saul to let him go out by talking about how he handled the bear and the lion when he was keeping the sheep. He said, God will help me just the same way against this Philistine. He finally talks King Saul into letting him go. He goes equipped with his sling and five smooth stones. You remember the story. Goliath is mad because they sent out a teenager. Goliath starts making threats. David simply says, you come out against me with a spear and a sword. I come against you with the name of God, the name of the Lord. So it says Goliath got up. Apparently he's sitting down waiting for somebody to show up. He's still sitting down when he talks to David. So then he stands up and David runs for him. He runs toward him, not running away. He runs toward him. You know the story? He catches him in the forehead with one of those five smooth stones. Goliath falls to the ground. David takes the sword away from Goliath and cuts his head off with it. Then everybody joins in. The armies of Israel begin chasing the Philistines and chasing for two days. We've got story after story after story of of incidents and things that happen in the Bible that are similar to that. Because people chose not to be afraid. Or maybe we ought to say it this way. Chose to do what needed to be done no matter how they felt. You remember the three Hebrew children that were facing Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. I love how they answer 
When King Nebuchadnezzar says, if you'll fall down and worship my image when the music sounds, we'll count this as never having happened. But if not, I'll throw you into the burning fiery furnace and who can save you then? They answered very specifically. They said, we are not careful to answer you, O King Nebuchadnezzar. What that means is very simply, we thought this through. We knew if this time came, we'd have to make a decision. And so we've already made it up front. We're not falling down to worship your image. If you do throw us into the fiery furnace, God will save us. If you don't, we're still not worshiping your image. I wonder what kind of feelings they had going on. I wonder what thoughts were coming to their mind. I wonder what the devil was trying to make them feel. See, we read stories about people in the Old Testament sometimes and even in the New Testament as well. We read stories about people and we think they must have had something extra. Well, maybe they did. Maybe what, maybe the, the something extra that they had was the determination to not let fear keep them from doing and being who God wanted them to be. And God came through just like they said. Story after story after story of people that won great victories, won great battles over enemies that were much, 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 much stronger than them. All because they didn't let fear keep them from acting on what God said they should do. Story of Joshua. I'm going to read to you from Joshua chapter 1, a few verses. Joshua is taking over for Moses. Joshua 1.1, 1, 1, now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, thou and all this people under the land which I do give to them, even to these children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon that have I given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even under the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and under the great sea go toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Fear not, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. I'll uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Isn't that the same thing that's happening here? Different words, but same message. So, God says, just as I was with Moses, so will I be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. Why would Joshua need to have good courage when God just said, I'll, with, I'll be with you just like I was with Moses. I'll never fail you or forsake you. Why is God then having to tell him, be of good courage? Because fear is a spiritual force. And fear is going to come against Joshua just like it comes against you and me. Whenever we try to step out into something, step out into new territory or act on what God told us to do. You can count on it. Fear will always show up. It's a spiritual force. I believe it's the only or at least the greatest spiritual force that the devil has. Without the power of fear against us, he has nothing. But God says to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. That indicates to me 
that Joshua is going to have to make some decisions just like the three Hebrew children did, just like David did regarding Goliath. He's going to have to make some specific choices, determined choices, that no matter what he feels like, no matter what it looks like, he'll keep moving forward by the direction of the Lord. Be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Verse 7, only be thou strong and very courageous. Don't give in to fear. Don't give in to fear. Now he's already said I'm going to take you over into the land. He's already said we're going to cross over the Jordan River like your forefathers were not able to do. Your parents, the previous generation that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, they've all died out now. Joshua's taking over from Moses. And so the children of those parents, family members that did not stand against fear, that allowed fear to keep them from going into the promised land. Now he says to Joshua, only be strong and very courageous. Now, folks, if that doesn't mean don't let fear affect you, then what does it mean? Only be strong and very courageous. It's an indicator to me that God knows that fear comes against all of us. But you can't find anywhere that the Bible says, if you won't give in to fear very much, you can have the blessings of God. You can't find anywhere that says, if you'll just entertain fear a little bit, then you'll have the blessings of God. Now, the instructions given to each one of us, just as it was given to Joshua, just as it was given to others, just as Jesus said to Jairus, the instruction given to us all is don't let fear change you or the word concerning you or your understanding of what God will do for you. Don't let fear change that. Don't let fear alter what you do or how you do it. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Folks, verse 7 specifically is saying don't let fear keep you from stepping out on the word. Don't let fear keep you from doing the word. Now, is that an indicator? Or could we use it as a point of revelation about how the devil works against all of us i believe we can anytime you find a promise from god there's going to be some degree of fear that the devil is going to bring to you either lesser or greater depending on where you are and what your circumstances are but the devil is always going to try to bring fear to you for the express purpose of keeping you from observing to do what the word says just like with Joshua. Now, you can't find anybody on the earth at this point in time. You can't find anybody on the earth that God's more with than him, Joshua. Joshua is the leader of his people, the only people that he has on the earth. And he's going to take them into the promised land, which is not going to be a cakewalk. There's, there are battles to fight. There are giants to, to do battle with. There are cities to take. The walls of Jericho are still up just like they were 40 years ago. Now, why would God have to tell Joshua to be strong and of good courage? 
If he's already said, and we just read it, since he said that I'll be with you just like I was with Moses, no man will be able to withstand thee all the days of thy life. What's there to, to, to be strong and courageous about? That tells me that the power of God doesn't always work the way that we would imagine or the way that we would hope that it would in either manifestation or time. There are still battles to fight. And you're only going to be victorious in those battles if you are strong and of good courage. God's already said the land is yours. It is. But it's going to take strength, spiritual strength. It's going to take spiritual courage to stand against the enemy that looks a lot bigger than you do. If we took the time to go back to Numbers 13 and 14, where it tells about what happened to Israel 40 years before this took place with Joshua, before God put Joshua in charge in Moses' place, you'll find out that the very reason that Joshua tells them and warns them about concerning taking the promised land, he simply says, the Lord is with us. We can take this. Don't fear the people. Well, then that has to mean the reason that their, their parents, the previous generation, the reason that they didn't go in and take the promised land is because they let themselves be afraid of what they saw. They let it change them. They let it change their position about what God said was theirs or what they could do because of what God said. It kept them from acting on the word. God's word and God's promise to them. Now God's telling Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Don't let fear change you. And then the golden text in verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success. Verse 9, God's still talking to him. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. That's three times in nine verses that God told Joshua, be strong and of good courage. I think he's trying to make a point. You'll find that when Joshua starts talking to the people, the people say, we'll follow you. We'll do whatever you tell us to do. Only be strong and of good courage. So they recognized what kept them out of the promised land 40 years. They recognized that it was their parents' fear. That spiritual force called fear that kept them in the wilderness out of God's possession, outside of God's possession. Be strong and of good courage. Why? Because the Lord is with you. I would submit to you folks that because he lives in us and didn't live in them, he's more with us than he was with them. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 13, I believe it is. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Let your conversation, manner of life, in other words, be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You don't have to try to take somebody else's stuff. God will make sure to provide you for you himself. So that we will boldly say, may boldly say, Since God said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee, that's exactly what he said to Joshua when he was commanding him to be strong and of good courage. 
Now he's saying to the church, God said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You know, we're in uh, 1 John, what is it? 1 John chapter 4, I believe it is, where John is talking about perfect love and he makes the statement that perfect love casts out fear. If you look at the context of what Paul's talking about, he's not talking about perfect love from you. He's not saying if you'll learn to walk perfectly in love, then there won't be anything for you to fear. That's not what he's saying. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we should develop in love to where it looks like the God kind of love to other people. The Bible commands us to walk in love. The Bible in- instructs us to grow in love. So all those are good things. But when John is talking about perfect love casting out fear, that's not what he means. That's not the reference he's making. When he's talking about perfect love casts out fear, he's talking about us coming to the understanding of how perfectly God loves us. And since God loves us perfectly, what is there to fear? What is there to fear? See, folks, the best thing that you and I can have is God with us. God with us is better than physical strength it's better than a big army it's better than chariots to fight your enemies with and horses or defensive measures of any type it's better than anything you can have anything else you can have because god being with you means you always win but by virtue of the fact that he keeps telling us over and over again to be strong and of good courage don't let fear change us that has to be an indication that it won't always look like you're winning. Because if everything is set out such that whatever we do just works smoothly and without hindrance and the devil never raises his head, where's the spirit of fear, the the spiritual force called fear? Where would it have any opportunity to work? It wouldn't. But the Bible tells us not to be weary in well-doing. The Bible tells us not to cast away our confidence. The Bible tells us that not casting away our confidence, even as in Abraham's situation, even in Abraham's life, is a byproduct of being strong in faith. It's an example of being strong in faith. Why do we need to be strong? Why do we need to recognize that fear in and of itself is not strong enough to keep the word from working against you, against me, against anybody. Why do we need strength in the middle of those situations? Because there's a standing in faith, period, that's necessary for us to walk through. So he said, God told us, I will never leave you, nor fail you, nor forsake you. Since God is with us, since God will never leave us, he'll never fail. We may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, so I will not fear what man will do unto me. You remember the story in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, when Jehoshaphat is king of Judah, and there are five enemy armies coming out against him. He knows that they don't have the physical strength and the military might to win the battle. So he sets his face to seek God and calls for a day of no time of fasting. And everybody does. Everybody's seeking the Lord. 
You remember as they began to pray or after they prayed, it says the spirit of the Lord came upon somebody called Jehaziel. We guess he's a prophet, but we don't know. But anyway, the spirit of the Lord came on him. He had enough respect in the eyes of the people to believe what he was saying was from God. And part of what he said, you remember, I'm sure you'll remember it when we refer to it. He said, the battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. Stand still and see the salvation of God. Right in the middle of that verse when he's telling him what their job is, what, what God wants them to do. Tomorrow go out against them. They're over by the cliff of Ziz. It says, fear them not, for the Lord is with you. Fear them not. Now, why would the Holy Ghost need to tell Israel, the people of Israel, why would the Holy Ghost have to tell them I mean, he's already said the battle's not yours, it's the Lord's. He's already told them, you won't have to fight this battle. Why does he tell them, don't fear the people? Well, I'm sure that if you're anything like me and you were in that crowd, especially if you were Jehoshaphat, you'd be thinking, Lord, this is great. We're so glad that the battle is not ours, but it's yours. We're so glad you're going to take care of our enemies. How about overnight, you just wipe them all out, and then in the morning, we can walk into their camp? That's the way I'd like for it to work. How about you? I mean, all this go out against them in the morning. What for? You're God. Just wipe them out. But even after God telling them by the Holy Ghost, even by, after the Holy Ghost saying, the battle's not yours, it's the Lord's, he will defend you. He still has to tell them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because there's a spiritual force that's going to come against them in the morning. They probably won't feel it till daybreak. I'm sure the night before, after the Holy Ghost came on Jehaziel and told him what he said, what we have record of that the Holy Ghost said, I'm sure that was a big time. I'm sure it was party night. Everybody's happy. Everybody's rejoicing. But then they wake up the next morning. And nobody feels as good as they did the night before. God knows that there's going to be a spiritual force called fear that comes out against them to try to keep them from doing what he told them to do. And folks, if they don't do what God told them to do, even though God wants them to win the battle, they don't have a chance. Even though God said, I'll fight for you. If they don't do, if they let this spiritual force called fear, just like Peter did when he walked on the water to Jesus, if they let that spiritual force called fear change them in any way concerning their attitude toward the word, if they allow it to keep them from acting on the word of God, even though it's the will of God for them to win the battle, they won't win. It will rob them of what God wants them to have. It will rob them. There are, uh, there are very few stories that I can tell you about my dad. He wasn't around much uh, when I was growing up. And then finally he and mom divorced. And, and um, I didn't see him much at all after that. And, and that because that's the way things went... I don't really have any stories to tell you that my dad taught me this or my dad taught, taught me something else. But I've got one. And this, well, I won't be definitive about it, but it's almost the only thing that I can remember interacting with my dad about. And here was the deal. 
we lived in a, a neighborhood, uh, small houses. It, looked, it was set up kind of like a square with uh, three or four streets in this neighborhood. And they all intertwined. There was only one way in, one way out. And so it was great for us kids as far as riding bicycles and stuff like that were concerned. We'd ride up one street and down the next street and then make a circle, come on back or go wherever we wanted to. It was kind of self-contained. And there was, a, uh, there was a, a family that had a dog at a certain place. And the house was sitting right here on the corner. We'd come riding down the street and make the turn in front of the house. And it was kind of on a, on a slope. And so we could get up some good speed and needed to get up some good speed to make that turn and, and get away from the house because they had a dog that was mean. I mean, tell, to tell you he was mean. And it was a challenge to be able to ride faster than the, pedal faster than the dog could run. And not all of us made it. There were times where we had bloody ankles from this dog biting on, chewing on us and stuff like that. Now I know today, you know, they'd put you in jail, kill your dog and, and then have somebody sue you for millions of dollars. But back then it was like, if you're not smart enough to stay away from the dog is, then you're going to get bit. So we were, we had made a, a trek and this was our evil Knievel type daredevil runs. And, uh, and so we got home and there were three or four of us riding and the guy in the back didn't make it without getting bit and chewed up a little bit. So we were bringing him home, getting some antiseptic or stuff, you know, uh, what's it called, mercurochrome? Is that what they call it? Anybody know what that is anymore? Well, I'm sure they don't use it. I'm sure it's dangerous and causes cancer and all the other kinds of things. But nevertheless, so we're, we're all sitting on the, uh, the patio uh, the carport really and um, uh, tending to the guy that got chewed up and for some reason my dad was home or came home or whatever it was he walked in and he saw us all sitting out there and he asked what was going on we told him the story and so forth and he said you guys are afraid of a dog well we're not exactly afraid we just respect him you know I mean we were hurt kind of offended and so forth and my dad said something Honest to goodness, it's one of the only things I ever remember that he taught me. But he said, any dog, no matter how big it is or how mean it is or whatever, he said, any dog will back down if you'll stare him in the face. He said, the reason he chases you is because you're riding away from him. If you'll stop your bike in front of it, get off and walk toward him, talk toward the dog and show him you're not afraid, he'll leave you alone. Man, we came up with a plan. Who's it going to be? Who's going to be the brave one to stand in the face of this dog? Well, we wound up going back out. I don't think it was that day, but the next day perhaps. We wound up going back out. And we came to the same place. And for some reason, I was hardly ever in the back. But for some reason, I was the last one in line to make the turn. Well, the problem with that is you couldn't stay too tight with each other on the bicycles because you'd knock one of them down or somebody could wipe out next to you and then everybody gets hurt. So the one in front was too far out in front. And so the dog was alerted when the first one went by. The rest of us are trying to get up enough speed to go by, and I'm in the, the rear of this thing. I came to, to understand real quickly by looking at the situation, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to be making my turn right, in the, right where this dog is, and I've got to slow down to make the turn so I won't wipe out. He's got me. And so I thought... You know, we were, the day before, we were all real big and real brave about what we were going to do to that dog. Now it's the next day. 
And nobody even considered stepping off their bicycle and looking at that dog. But I thought, well, he's got me either way. Let's give it a try. So I stopped my bike and I got off and this dog is running at me. He's growling. He sounds vicious and all this kind of stuff. And in my head, I'm thinking, there's not going to be enough left of me to bury. This dog is going to eat me alive. But I got off my bicycle, kind of tossed it aside and went straight for that dog. And I got within about five feet of that dog and he started backing up. Before long, I had him coming and he was licking my hand. And I thought, man, this is cool. I became the neighborhood hero. I tamed the dog, the fierce dog. You know, I got to think about that the other day. That's carried me. That, uh, that lesson has carried me in a lot of ways. And I got to thinking, you know, as far as the Bible tells us, that we've been raised and seated in heavenly places, that dog really has more authority on the earth than Satan does. He has more right to be here. If we can face down a dog by facing our fears, and boy, I'm telling you, fear was about all I was feeling. If we can do that with an animal, and if man can tame every wild animal, and every wild animal on the earth has been tamed to some degree or another, if we can do that with animals that are genuinely vicious and wild, why shouldn't we be able to do the same thing standing against the devil? Every time we see somebody doing it, like David, the three Hebrew children, Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel, every time we see somebody doing it, no matter how they felt, no matter what they thought about it, no matter what feelings were coming against them, the ones that we see are the successful ones, the ones that turned out to be heroes of faith, were the ones that faced the devil down. If the church only knew the power we have, if the church only knew the authority that we have, if the church only knew to exercise the authority that we do have over the devil, this world would be a totally different place. I personally don't think we can count on the church world doing that as a whole. So I think it's going to have to start with you and me. Be not afraid. Only believe. Fear not. God said, I am with you. Since he will never leave us or forsake us, why should we be afraid of what somebody else is going to do? Why should we be afraid of the devil? Now, the devil will try to bring fear against you to keep you from doing things like paying your tithes. He'll tell you you can't make it. To keep, and, and what he's doing is he's not trying to make sure you have enough. He's robbing you of God's abundance. And a lot of people never do conquer the fear of tithing. The fear that the devil brings to keep them from making God first and foremost in their finances. A lot of people never overcome the fear of standing in faith for their healing or for the restoration of some situation in their lives. Because fear will come no matter what you're believing for, no matter what you choose to believe for. Fear will come because the devil doesn't want you to win even the smallest victory. Because the smallest victory can be built upon for a greater victory. So whether fear comes before you act on the word to keep you from doing what the word says or fear comes after you've stepped out in faith and now you're standing 
It's all the same thing. It's all the same rabid-looking dog to alter where you are and what you believe. Be not afraid, only believe. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. What a privilege it is to be doers of your word, Father. We thank you that you have caused us to be overcomers in every situation, more than conquerors. You said, Father, concerning the work of the devil on the earth and the evil spirits that are at work, you said that we've already overcome them by the blood of Jesus. You said, Father, that you've put all things under the feet of Jesus, which means you've put all things under the body of Christ. Even as Jesus is the head and we're the tail, (laughs) even as Jesus is the head and we're the body, all things have been put under our feet. Oh, Father, that you would prompt us and help us to make that determined decision to not give an inch to the evil one. Your word is true, Father, and no fear, no threat from the enemy, no power that he pretends to have can keep your word from being a reality in our lives if we'll stand strong in faith. If we will fear not and only believe. So we thank you, Father, for helping us. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You are our helper. And we do boldly say, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Thank you, Father, for bringing us into victory. Every one of us in every situation. In Jesus' name. Can you agree with that prayer? Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Have a great rest of the week.